0: For your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 17th, 2016. We'll be doing our light episode today on schedule though it's a shorter week. Listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers. Self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, vision casters, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes—those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose uh, small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God—yeah, not a good sign. And so, what we demonstrate over and over and over again is what you're getting in popular evangelical preaching and teaching is not biblical doctrine. It's not historic Christian orthodoxy. It's something else. And if you don't believe me, I always recommend never listen to fighting for the faith with an open mind. Always listen with an open Bible. So part of the process of learning how to do a good discernment, to, to rightly understand what is revealed in God's word, well, that requires you to spend a little bit of time listening to good exegetical sermons on the part of well, good pastors and preachers. And so we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes here uh, with Pastor Jeremy Rody, and debunking this whole idea that somehow Christianity teaches that God has some major dream destiny thingy that he's supposed that you're supposed to accomplish or whatever. Yeah, when you understand what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes, you understand that that emphasis in teaching is like far from what the Bible actually says. So with that, we're going to get into Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today. Here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study in Ecclesiastes. We're looking at chapter 5. Again, just to sort of give us context, we have in chapter 4 with Solomon reflected on the oppression and the evil of humanity itself. And therein it falls under the judgment, the pronouncement, that the all is vanity. And in chapter 5, where we would assume, well, humanity humanity isn't the answer, isn't what gives weight and meaning to life, then maybe God is. Instead of a straightforward and easy answer, as if, yeah, God is the easy fix and the easy solution, we find something very contrary. The opening words of chapter 5, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Wait a minute, you can be doing religion, even be doing the religion of the temple, be doing the religion of Yahweh, and be doing evil? That's shocking. That's stunning that this, too, has an aspect of vanity, meaninglessness, even danger, that while one thinks he is doing good, he is, in fact, doing evil. Now, we discussed this in light of the rest of the biblical testimony last week, and we can look at this from two different aspects, contrasting Solomon's the stress that he puts on listening, and we'll see that theme continued throughout this section. Listening rather than speaking. Listening rather than sacrificing. But here in these first verses of chapter 5, we have listening juxtaposed to the sacrifice of fools. Now, what is this sacrifice of fools versus listening? From If we look at it from an anthropocentric uh, lens... Then we'll see with Psalm 51, where David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. A broken and a contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. So the sacrifice of a broken uh, heart, a broken and contrite spirit, then that is better, is the opposite of this sacrifice of fools. So the sacrifice of fools is, in essence, going through the motions. God asked me to do X, Y, and Z. I'll do X, Y, and Z. No repentance, no faith, no trust. Just walking through the motions, doing the religion, and therein doing evil. Therein becoming fools, in the words of Solomon. Okay, now, that's from the anthrop- anthropocentric uh, viewpoint. From the Christocentric viewpoint, these sacrifices are the sacrifices of fools, not because there's something wrong with them in and of themselves, but because they're abused. As if this is the end-all, be-all before God. As if the temple and its sacrifices are to be preferred to Christ and his once-and-for-all sacrifice. Now, there's this tension that builds up all through the Old Testament. After all, God is the one who establishes the sacrifices, right? Establishes the temple, establishes the worship. Of course, it's pleasing in his sight. What's not pleasing is the misuse and abuse of it. And what's not pleasing, in a sense, is that even the Lord himself has instituted that, not as the end-all, be-all, but as that which points us Forward to the one sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now that idea is taken up, as we saw last week. I think I covered this with you. I couldn't, re- <laughs> couldn't remember. It's terrible. Ah, uh, what sleep depravity does. <laughs> Psalm forty, uh, verse six, is this sort of lens through which we see this so psalm 40 verse 6 sacrifice and offering you did not desire but my ears you have opened burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require then i said behold i come in the scroll of the book it is written of me i delight to do your will O my god your law is within my heart these verses are talking of course about Christ. In fact, they are the literal voice of Christ speaking to the Father. The Holy Spirit has given us these words so that as we are praying them in this psalm, our voices become one with the voice of the Son in the dialogue that takes place in the Godhead itself between the Father and the Son. Absolutely incredible to pray the psalms. If we knew what we were doing when we prayed the psalms, we'd hardly be able to pray them. So, this points to the inferiority of the sacrifices, though they be good, all right, though they be instituted by God, they are nonetheless not the fulfillment of His purposes. They are not perfect. Rather, God's will and the final sacrifice is made perfect uh, in this Behold, I come. That is, with the coming of the Messiah. The incarnation of God, where Yahweh becomes man, comes into our flesh in order to bear the sins, guilt, the shame of all human flesh, in his own flesh, to offer himself flesh and blood on the altar of the cross. We uh, looked at this so that you, and again, I think we did this last week, I hope we did. If not... Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 10. It takes up this very psalm and argues the very point that I'm making to you so that you can see that it's not my own private opinion, but rather this is exactly how the earliest church, the author of Hebrews, understood uh, this tension and understood these words. Okay, so what does that mean for us as we go to the temple of God or rather in our own time as we go to church, that we ought to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not know that they are doing evil. Solomon continues, verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Right? So, Rather than having you know, the idea of God or the toil of religion simply be the end-all be-all and the obvious and easy answer, Solomon presents it as very challenging. In fact, this is God in continuity with the same God who has been presented to us before by Solomon in Ecclesiastes, namely a God with whom we must guard ourselves, We must be careful even in doing what he tells us to do, lest we do it wrongly and end up sinning. Doing evil, making the sacrifice of fools. We must go into God and instead of blabbering endlessly and praising him and praising him and praising him, Solomon is emphasizing the opposite of, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word. Let your words be few. A fool's voice is known by having many words. Which I think is an interesting observation in all sorts of spheres. You know? Have you ever, written an, or have you ever like, read something, by the time you're done with it, you're like, that whole thing could have been said in about two sentences. So not only is it a general observation, but it's uh, specifically true in the context of religion. Remember now, Jesus will reflect on similar things when he talks about prayer and the importance of keeping it simple, the importance of not praying as to be heard or not trying to impress God with flowery language. Honestly, when we prepare the prayers for Sunday services, um, we get beamed to us pre-written prayers. Uh, by somebody in the LCMS who writes them all. And one of the first things I do, uh, figuratively, is uh, receive that paper and take out my sickle and start whacking out all the flowery, pharisaical nonsense and crap. I'm going to get an angry email when this is online. (laughs) Scott, when you're editing this, just delay it a little bit, (laughs) will you? You know, we've we've lost, this, we've lost this understanding of Ecclesiastes where, again, wisdom is in terseness. And here, here Jack's point is well taken, too, that just because God is dwelling with us and dealing with us imminently and as our Father doesn't mean that he gives up his transcendence and his omniscience. We don't have to blabber on and on. God already knows. So, in the words of Solomon, let your words be few, um, Let your heart not be hasty to utter a word, etc. This theme continues on then through verses 4 through 7. Let's look at those. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So, this is God who certainly has an edge. And God who's not just like, hey, you know, you vowed and you didn't vow. I'm just glad you showed up. Uh, That attitude, though prevalent in America and our way of thinking, uh, is nowhere in the Scriptures. Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And continuing with the previous theme, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, that would be the priest, that it was a mistake. I made this vow, the priest was my witness, now I come and tell him it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. All right, so this is an indictment of all religion that it does not take the posture of fear toward God, of silence toward God, of respect and reverence toward God, and even then. If you take the whole of Solomon's painting, this is not a God who is particularly gracious or merciful, particularly personable, particularly forgiving. Uh, Rather, he is one to be feared, he is one to not be taken lightly, he is one to not be lied to, he is one not to be uh, mocked by false sacrifices. So, at the end of this section, what does God look like? Not much different than the portrait that Solomon painted earlier, where, in chapter 2, for example, where he says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him... Who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. In other words, God, if we view him with our reason, with our sight, with the utmost of our capabilities granted to us under the sun, then we see him as fickle, we see him as dangerous, and we see the worship and interaction with him as fraught with danger. And that would be seeing with your eyes open. Everything else would be lies and idols and deceit. Okay. Now, again, by way of relief, that paints a picture of us... Uh, paints a picture for us of what Christ will be like when he comes. He will be all these things and yet he will be the fulfillment of them. Uh, He will be the sacrifice. He will be the vow. He will be the word. He will be God's gift to us. Um, He will be that which we receive and the face of God's mercy to us. But, We would only grasp that through the Holy Spirit. We would only grasp that with the eyes of faith. We would only be able to see that reality, not under the S-U-N, but under the S-O-N. Right. So if we take this again and look at this on the whole, where, where Solomon blankets everything and says the all is vanity, then every attempt at religion, even the attempt at Yahweh's religion itself, is vanity. Meaningless, fraught with danger, fickle, uncertain, without foundation, without surety or certainty. Again, by negative contrast, painting that need for Christ. And so as we talk about Christ as the answer to Ecclesiastes, or the questions that Ecclesiastes evokes, it's not an answer in the way of, oh, well, that's it, that resolves the tension. Jesus, right? Like Sunday school, what's the answer? Jesus! Always. You know, even if you're wrong, the pastor's not going to get mad at you. He's not the answer in a superficial way of, well, that solves that. <laughs> End of the dilemma. Rather, he is the answer that is presented in constant tension with the question, both of which exist in tension in our hearts and minds until his return, till the new heavens and the new earth. So the theology of Ecclesiastes is continually asking you and therefore you must continually answer with what God has given in Christ. And those two are ever in tension. And remember, havoc is wreaked on our faith and on our theology when we favor one over the other. Where we view only God as fearful and unknowable and unapproachable, then we're sure to Have a system that's like that, a system where we talk not directly to Christ, who is God, who is too terrible and fearful, but let's talk to Christ's mom instead, let's talk to Christ's friends instead, right? Degrees of separation from this awesome and holy and frankly terrifying God. Whereas the other extreme that Christianity swings into his, let's ignore Ecclesiastes, ignore all of that, and just embrace a God who is basically a used car salesman, your good old buddy, your good old pal. He'd do anything to seal the deal for you and give you a hug. All right? Those would be the two extremes that the church, or that we as individual Christians, fall into, lest we hold the question of Ecclesiastes and the answer of Christ intention and in continued tension throughout our days. All right, well, that gives us opportunity to break uh, for some questions or comments that you might have. Again, if we're progressing around, you know, we did the whole cycle thing, that was chapter one through chapter three, Uh, then we started looking at the problem with humanity and the ultimate futility of looking at humanity as the end-all, be-all, and now we're looking at religion, and we're saying the same thing. We're looking at the futility uh, and the uncertainty involved with religion per se. And that's what we've been looking at in 5. We'll go back to that theme later in chapter 7 as well. But let's break now and see if you have any thoughts or questions. Urgent announcements. <laughs> Jokes. Stories. No. No. Okay, wonderful. Let's go on. Now here in this section, you're going to see why many uh, commentaries, many scholars, see the rest of Ecclesiastes as sort of a rambling hodgepodge that keeps jumping themes and going back to old themes, then going a little further and jumping back. And then in chapter 7, it's like you hit the fast forward button on this. (laughs) And it's hard to tell if there's any inter, 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 any interconnection of ideas whatsoever. Um, but we see that right now. In verse 8, we see a jump. Okay? We've done humanity. We've done God. And now we see a quick little excursion in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. What word in English do we have for this? Bureaucracy! <laughs> Somebody said it absolutely right. You mean Solomon all those years ago, 3,000 years ago, was lamenting bureaucracy? Absolutely. And he was the king! <laughs> And he's lamenting the bureaucracy, and he's lamenting how human leadership and the bureaucracy that naturally develops fails to protect humanity, to protect the weak, from oppression. Thus he laments the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. But of course he says, and this always slaps me right in the face, uh, do not be amazed at the matter. Where I'm constantly amazed and scandalized. You know, you hear something driving to work on the news about what the bureaucracy, what the government officials have done, the ineptitude, the complete insanity of it all, and you marvel. You marvel. And Solomon would say, what are you marveling for? So it's been a lot, so it was before I existed, so it's been for 3,000 years, and so it will be until the Lord himself returns. Bureaucracy will, ru- will ruin everything, and what an indictment of humanity. What an indictment of humanity. Um, we need good governors. No doubt about it. We have one, Right? <laughs> Yeah, Kerry's uh, city council now, right? So it's all your fault. No, <laughs> not just easily. Yeah, we need, we need good government. We need good government. We need people to come up on our city councils to work for, at county and state levels, national levels. We need good government. This isn't an, an anarchist-type post. Uh, you know, Solomon is the king. He's going to hand off his kingdom to a successor. There's going to be a usurper and a split, but that's not what Solomon wants. He isn't anti-government. He isn't anti-hierarchy. He isn't anti-any of that. But he's anti-human ineptitude. And he's anti-bureaucratic nonsense that ends up perverting justice and righteousness. And he points this out. "Don't Don't be surprised by the matter. It's always been and always will be. And that's the. Therein lies the indictment of humanity. That at our best, humanity always devolves into this self-rule. You know, to have one ruler, whatever system of government it is, for man to rule himself to be corporately autonomous is an utter and absolute failure. That's the indictment. It's futile. It's vain. When humanity rules itself, it goes nowhere. That's the point. Which, of course, by way of relief, points us to the need for a very different kind of government, a very different kind of king, one not of this world, nor are his ways of this world, nor is his kingdom of this world but rather envisioned precisely and iconically on the king who is crowned in thorns hanging from the cross with no bureaucracy, just simply getting it done all by himself for us. A king who truly serves the people rather than asking the people to serve him. Envisioned and envisaged in Christ crucified. All right, all of that's in the background. For now, we simply have the lament and the very insightful pointing out to us that this isn't ever going to go away. The kingdoms of the of this world will always be this way. The governments of this world will always be this way.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there. Pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition. For any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at fire christian. Quick break, and we come back. The balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back.
1: We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose. Our two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance. Our three weapons. Our purpose, vision and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to record. Our four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again.
0: <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. <laughs>
2: Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian turtle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it.
3: Uh, what?
2: you want to say what the bit about our chief weapons are.
0: Uh, I, I couldn't do that. But, but... <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, our do, chief ex- weapons are? our chief weapons are, um, purpose. uh, uh, vision. Okay, okay, stop,
2: stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose, blah, 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 blah. Youth, Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like, hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program? That's enough! Now, how do you plead?
0: Well, we're we're innocent.
2: innocent. Ha! Ha! Ha ha ha! We'll soon change your mind about that!
0: morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could convince you that while well, Christianity isn't all about having your best life now or accomplishing a dream destiny thingy. just a reminder: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. You can partner with us; it's a partnership. Visit our website. Fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount of money. Well, that you decide. Our lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95. And Quartermaster, $99.95. Yeah, those are our ranks in our crew and it's based upon your monthly uh, contribution. This is a great way to support us, by the way. helps helps us have a sure foundation financially, and as we build in crew members, well, then that increases our monthly income so that we can finally, once and for all, get to the point where we can launch uh, PirateChristian.com Part 2. Yeah, we're working on Phase 2. So if you don't already support us, that's a great way to do so. If you'd like to specify the amount or make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button, Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly can't do what we're doing here without it. And have you signed up yet for the uh, 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference that's going to be held up here in, uh, in, well, near North Dakota, but in Oslo, Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be Friday, August 12th, Saturday, August 13th. Uh, the registration cost per person is only $114.95 uh, to attend. That includes, uh, you know, eight conference sessions, two Ask the Pastor panels. It also includes two lunches uh, at, at Gangsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. And also, you also get a, a, the, uh, our summer uh, t-shirt, our, our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt, as well as the conference audio that's included in the uh, in the cost of registration. And to be myself, uh, Brian Wolfmuller, Jeremy Rohde, and Jordan Cooper, who will be talking about the contact concept of Semper Reformanda. Uh, that means the church is always reforming. And what is it the church needs to reform now? I think that would be a good way of talking about it. Look forward to having you come out. There's only 150 spots open for our conference this summer, so register soon if you haven't already registered yet. All right, moving along. This is the balance of our lecture today on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 15. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde.
1: All right, now the thought continues into verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. That's what a king should be interested in. Food for the people. That's his goal. That's his purpose. Luther, you have to want, in the large catechism, I think it's under Give Us This Day, Our Daily Bread, In his discussion of that. You have to wonder if he didn't have this in mind because the comment he makes is that rulers, princes, ought not have on their crest lions or wreaths, but rather a loaf of bread. He says, in fact, Coins that are stamped with what? The heads of our rulers ought to be stamped in he- instead with a loaf of bread. Why? To remind the people the purpose of a ruler and to remind rulers their purpose. It's to help and aid people in eating and living, protecting them so that they can do that, etc. Okay, so here's here's Solomon Instead of worrying about bureaucracy and climbing the ladder and high official and who's watched by a higher and yet higher ones over them, instead, a blessing in every way is a king or a ruler who is simply committed to cultivated fields, food to providing for his people. All right, there's his riff now just sort of inserted in here on governments, and we move on to money. But are there any questions since we're at a section break? Or any comments? Anything you resonate with? Hopefully all of it. Off to money. So you can see some, maybe, rationale here, you know. Humanity in general and service to humanity, fall that toil falls under All is vanity. God and religion per se, under the S-U-N, falls under the condemnation of vanity. Government falls under the condemnation of vanity. And then likewise, money falls under the condemnation of vanity. And that's what we find here in verse 10 and following. this will be a theme over the next couple chapters that gets referred to back and forth quite a lot. So, if not God, then mammon. Surely that's the answer. Verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, God has written this futility into our world such that the one who loves money and sets his life in order in such a way to gain money and his toil is the increase of money and wealth, God has so subjected this world to futility that he will not be satisfied with money. Even if he gets promotion upon promotion, raise upon raise, That money never satisfies him. There is always someone who has more. There is always more that he could do if he had more. And Solomon says this also is vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Here in verse 11, Solomon in the 9th century B.C. sounds like a rap artist in the 20th century A.D. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Okay. In the immortal words of the notorious BI.G, "More money, more problems." Okay? The more money you get, the more problems you have. The more money that comes in, the more uh, those increase who consume that money. You know, no matter what your paycheck is, uh, your budget will eventually grow to consume it. That's how it works. Whether you make $25,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $200,000, a million a year, your budget will grow until it's all consumed. And you're shaking your head thinking, really not that wealthy. Even really wealthy people feel that way. Okay, so this is the curse and the futility of the pursuit of money or wealth. And then verse 12, this is amplified and specified. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. In other words, if you were to view the two together, a poor person, a laborer who has uh, maybe has much to eat tonight, it's Friday night and little to eat Monday night. He sort of lives paycheck to paycheck. He exhausts himself, but when he lays down to sleep, He sleeps. Sleeps. (laughs) Sometimes that's the allure, isn't it? Wouldn't you just love to just—this is a fantasy I have—I shouldn't say this out (laughs) loud—to just quit your complex and difficult job and just go get a job where you—all that's required of you is to accomplish move A to B, and when you've done it, it's done. And when the five o'clock bell rings, you're done. You know, and you just pour yourself into that, and you go home and you sleep the sleep of a laborer. You sleep the sleep of the blessed, and that's it. Your worries decrease exponentially. So here also is the, uh, you know, a very poignant way I think Solomon has of poetically painting this curse sweet as the sleep of a laborer. You know, the guy with calloused hands and worn-out clothes, he sleeps better, whether he's eaten little or much. But the full stomach of the rich, as one who always eats, who gorges himself, who lives that way, who has that lifestyle, it won't let him sleep. And poetically, that's because not only is his belly full to the point of uncomfortable, but his whole life is filled to the point of uncomfortable. And probably in Orange County, that's what most of us suffer from. Life full to the point of uncomfortable. Trying to manage it all. Trying to wrestle it all. Not sleeping well. Okay, he continues with this theme in verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing, excuse me, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. All right. So here's the coup de grace, here's the bottom line is you've done all this toiling, you've done all this striving, you've done all this eating and worrying, and often all that you have is kept to your own hurt. That can take on many forms. Often what you've worked so hard on, your whole life savings, your whole investment, your whole retirement, for one reason or another, is lost. Or you've done all this, and your life is at an end, and you have a son, but uh, your son's going to end up with none of it, so he's not even going to prosper from it. Governmental tax it, you have debts and expenses, he ends up with nothing. And the sad bottom line to all of this, and all the many, many forms that it can take, is that as we come from our mother's womb, so shall we return. We came naked, We return naked for all the toiling of our life. We leave just as empty-handed as we came. And that's an atrocity. What Solomon says, that's vanity. That's meaninglessness. That's curse. You labor and labor and labor, however long the Lord gives you. 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, 100 years. You labor and labor and labor and labor, and you die. And what do you have to show for it? Zilch. Now, Jesus riffs on this, of course, and says, uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Because very frankly, very concretely, every last one of us lose the whole world. We lose our whole world. We lose our whole lives. We lose it all. We return to the Lord completely empty-handed. But if we lose the Lord, if we lose our lives... In the name of Christ, our lives are gained and given to us. Okay, so this is definitely a sword to the throat of this particular idol, this particular toil and way of life, the pursuit of riches, the vanity of it all. There's an apocryphal story. I don't think it's probably true at all. I think most scholars that I've read don't think it's true at all. It's apocryphal, but it's nonetheless interesting and may stick in your mind for a long time. It's the uh, supposed last words of Alexander the Great, who died having conquered basically the entire known world and beyond. Um, Incredible wealth, incredible intelligence, incredible riches. Dies at the age of 33. And again, this is the apocryphal account. But when giving the instructions from his deathbed about his burial... He said, this one thing do I request, that as I'm buried, my hands would be left sticking out of, the, out of the coffin. Confused by this, his generals said, why? And he said, so that everyone can see that Alexander the Great, who conquered and has possessed the entire world, leaves this world with his hands empty with absolutely nothing. Apocryphal, fictitious, probably, probably, but nonetheless extremely poignant, very poignant fiction and parable. No matter if you gain the whole world in the end, that's it. You take nothing for all your toil. And Solomon's not going to mince words. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. Grievous evil. It's terrible. It's un. It feels unjust. But it's the curse of God where he subjects all to futility. It's the curse of death where he brings an end and we lose not only our bodies but all that we've earned here under the sun. It's a grievous evil. Just as he came, I'm in verse 16, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? That's all humanity, toiling for the wind. Toiling for the wind. Now wisdom, or at least the first step, is realizing this. Foolishness, folly, is thinking that somehow the illusion, the delusion is true. You'll be here forever. All your stuff is yours forever. It just keeps going and going and going. That's the delusion, the illusion that... uh, Ecclesiastes means to break for us. So it is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Rhetorical question, and the answer is, of course, nothing. Verse 17 Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. that's not what Facebook shows me. Everyone's happy and well and not vexed and dwelling in light. Everything's happy in the world we present to one another. And yet, undoubtedly, you know that right under the surface of that fib and under that surface, that theology of glory is, of course, the reality. That all of our days, we eat in darkness, much vexation, in sickness, and in anger. confusion and darkness afflict us. Uncertainty and doubts afflict us. Vexation and struggle and torment. And anyone who know, owns a house knows this particularly well. You no know, sooner than you fix something, there's something else that has to get fixed. And then you go back and realize you fixed the first thing totally wrong, and now you've got to destroy more than you fixed in order to fix what you fixed wrong. <laughs> vexation and vexation and Vexation. And sickness, of course, which takes on so many forms. You know, we've uh, removed God from sickness. and the language of Solomon, this is a grievous evil because we've pushed God so far away from us that sickness is just something that happens to you and maybe God at a distance will heal you. And uh, while that sounds so pious and safe and keeps God's hands clean and and keeps you from really wrestling with anything too deep, uh, you you come to conclude that, well, sickness is just a thing, and we all get over it, and God's at a distance, and maybe he helps. Rather, the view of our forefathers for 1,500 years of Christendom and way back beyond that into the Old Testament, um, sickness comes from the hand of God. And sickness is, as it were, for Christians, a call uh, into communion with God. Our Lutheran confessions call it the visitation of God. (laughs) When a holy God comes knocking on a sinner's door, the sinner gets sick. But the visitation is such that you are stripped of your faculties, so that you can't go on doing what you're doing. And you actually have to pause. Like it or not, you have to. You can't think at full capacity. You can't work at full capacity. You have to pause. And you have to consider God. And you have to consider the affliction. And you have to consider how it is that you consider him a loving father despite the affliction. In short, you have to meditate on the cross. St. John says, In this the love of God is known. Christ gave his life for us. So, uh, as opposed to just popping all the pills, we pop so that we don't have to feel it, hoping it's over, maybe praying to God for relief. uh, We're invited by the heritage of the church, by our much larger family, to view sickness differently and in a much more spiritual light. All right, well, enough on that. There's much vexation and sickness. Of course, we fall apart as we go through this life. It's an unfortunate reality. And anger. Because there's enough here to make you really angry. There's enough in this life, in your own life, in your own failings, and the failings of those around you to make you really angry. And Solomon simply reflects on that. Okay, bright, happy, positive things to think about. you know. But the, but the happiness and the positivity, I think, is simply in a doctor who gives the right diagnosis. And a man who speaks our fears, who speaks what we're afraid to speak, who says all the impious things we've been thinking that aren't Christian and must mean we don't have very strong faith. And here's Solomon saying, yeah, you're right and that's how it is. And what comfort there is, even in that alone, let alone that to this tension that we experience until our dying day we also have Christ and him crucified and him resurrected as an as an answer as, as a dialogue as not so that we don't have the bleakness of ecclesiastes as the last word but rather the first word the second and last word being our lord jesus the new heavens and the new earth resurrected bodies the redemption of time and space and all toils so that Nothing in the new heavens and the new earth will be vain or futile or meaningless. All right, well, we can pause there for a second if there are thoughts or comments. If not, we'll just keep pressing on. I see a hand here, Stella. We need to, wait one second, we have to get you the microphone. Um.
3: Well, looking uh, from you just talking about the last the second part that it seems like it's talking about an individual you know that everything goes into vexation sickness and anger because whatever we do we have to it was wrong or it comes out wrong and that is individual so that individual goes into you're talking about earlier regarding um, the oppression uh, for support uh, regarding the governors and authorities. Mm-hmm. So, this is not only, well, it seems like it's a description of a secular society, but perhaps it's also in general a secular and a religious society is the same. So, really doesn't give us any hope. Within, you know, in this world, mm-hmm. just uh, like you're saying, struggling uh, mentally, you know, that battle of bringing Jesus constantly, uh, and it seems like it's a very small was well, uh, light, or or, or the. the path is very narrow, of course everything that is surrounding us is very negative, even though the religious society because that's what we're seeing you know what is happening with the church is oppression to the poor, that people are going into churches and not giving or not giving the true food, spiritual food, mm-hmm. and it's part of the oppression that they're trying. To Keep us away, the um, true hope. So, uh, how can we stand in a soil like that to continue moving forward until our last day, under the sun? The
1: end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you you brought that up at the end because that's. I mean, Solomon isn't trying to paint a picture of a secular world per se certainly not a Christian world per se, just the world. Just if you look if any human being, any culture, any time, any place, looks at the world with his eyes, uses his mind, is, is sick and tired of the lies that culture and society and fools tell us, and we just look at the realities, this is the conclusion we come to. This is wisdom. So he invites us along this journey with him to discover this and to have confirmed in us what, our, what many of our experiences already are, what many of our thoughts already are. But the world that Solomon is painting is the world under the S U N, and we're going to see that that in and of itself is all vanity. Now, why is that important? Because the great lie is that it's not vanity. The great lie is that this does matter. It's the end-all, be-all. If you had this, you don't need God. Right? Um, Imagine a world without God. Imagine a world without religion. Imagine a world without heaven or hell. Okay? Imagine a world where you are simply, you know, you love working. So you just work and it's paradise. You love Religion, and so you just go do religion and, and you thrive. And you love people, so you go serve people. You love greatness, so you build great things in societies and civilizations. You love pleasure and the finer things and, uh, you know, gaining a distinct palate. And, you know, you, so pursue those things. And in the end, you will be happy, you will be fulfilled, you will have lived, right? You will have lived a good and full life. The old lie we always hear at the funeral, right? Now, against that, because all of that's, did I say seminary? No, okay. (laughs) At the funeral, at the cemetery, that's what you hear. Now, against all that is what Ecclesiastes is speaking to. You know, in this false force of lies, Ecclesiastes is like the great big axe wielded by Solomon chopping it all down saying, open your eyes, this place is right next to hell, This place isn't going to fulfill you. Neither money, nor religion, nor serving man, nor wealth, nor power, nor pleasure, nor wisdom. None of it is going to fulfill you. You are destined for so much more. Let me show you what this world is. It's a pot of porridge. And you think that this pot of porridge is better than your birthright. I'm going to show you that this pot of porridge ain't all that good. Oh, you bet. There's some tender potatoes and some nice smoked bacon and enjoy it. But it's going to be gone. And it's going to be gone in the blink of an eye. Then what? Right? And that then what dot 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 begins to be answered for us in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. So this is the world under the S-U-N, and of course we as Christians live in the world of the S-O-N, but as it were, in the same way we are simul justus Picard, at the same time sinner and saint, we are at the same time living in two different worlds. We are living in this world, okay? we are living in Ecclesiastes, and, and under the S-U-N, but we are also simultaneously living under the S-O-N. But that life is given to us only via faith. And we begin to see that world under the S-O-N, only insofar as God grants it, and only insofar as we believe what he says. And even then, that world in which we live, you're going to, you know, show it to me, prove it to me. You know, make me taste it, touch it, feel it. You can't. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not like this world, Right? So therein lies the tension. The world in which we live under the S-O-N is a world that is granted, grasped, perceived only by faith. And again, if we're going to take Jesus very explicitly, the entree point to this kingdom under the S-O-N is baptism. Remember what he says to Nicodemus. Now, unless you are born again, you cannot... See the kingdom. Unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. Unless unless you are born again, born from above, born by water and the Spirit, you can't see the world that is here, hidden, the world that is under the S-O-N, but as a baptized child of God, faithful to Him, reborn, born anew through the water and the Spirit, listening to His Word, he guides you to see it and to see it more and more. So this world then becomes transformed. And yet in such a way that it doesn't negate Ecclesiastes, where we just throw that out and say, "Ah, oh, well, he must have been depressed. Oh, ah, that's just a dark book. No. Uh, no. No in such a way that we're mature and we hold these two together and we become, if you will, citizens of both and masters of both worlds. And so when we meet a creature of the one world, we know how to speak to them. When we meet a creature of the other world, we know how to speak to them. Right? Hopefully that's not terribly confusing. Alice.
3: Okay. You're making oh. me think, how do we raise children? It's like... We gave them this outlook so wrongly. Um, because what, when we raise them, we raise them with enthusiasm, optimism. You know, we're going to go out there and do things. It's almost like Ecclesiastes is correcting all that.
1: I I would, I'm i going to interrupt you. I okay. wouldn't say it's correcting all that. Um, it is better to be wise than a fool. Teach your kids that, right? It's better to be hardworking than lazy. Teach your kids that. And yet, while you're teaching them that, teach them that that's not the end-all be-all. Teach them that these things have their limits, that these things are for a time. And then, uh, also to interrupt you, I'm sorry, while I have you interrupted, chapter 7, we'll get into that. Um, The very concrete answer would be take your kids to a cemetery. And talk to them. Don't shelter them. Uh, Okay, to lurch ahead very far into verse 7. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. This is the end of all mankind. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. In other words, Solomon is saying, you're going to get a heck of a lot more wisdom Walking through a cemetery or going to a funeral, then you're going to get going to another drinking party or Christmas soiree, and that's just an objective fact. And so, with our kids, don't shelter them. I mean, at the same time, don't be masochistic. You know, Graveyard Friday, kids, let's go. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's not the point. But the point is, don't shelter them. Don't shelter them that way. Let them be exposed while they're under your guiding care so that you can counsel them, so that you can grant them the wisdom that God has granted you. Grant them that ability to deal with that. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Did you have more? No,
3: no, that's helpful.
1: Okay, all right. Alice, one more and then we'll, we'll, we'll
2: break. Okay, I'll make it kind of quick, although it's kind of open. When, when grief is, is visited on you or sickness in very severe sickness or very profound grief, people will come around and say, God didn't do this to you. The devil did it. Yeah. And then the next question is, well, why did God let the devil do it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
2: I've always felt that God, I agree with the pause. Mm-hmm. I don't like it, but I agree with it. And I, I, I why would God do that? I don't know. but. No.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be taken up later again in chapter 7. We'll have opportunity to discuss this thoroughly. But in chapter 7, verse 14, Solomon reflects on this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Um, taking up previous language, so that man might fear God. In other words, God has made the day of prosperity and the day of adversity, right? So we have to deal with God. So any attempt to keep God's hand, hands clean is also an attempt to push him away. And when God's far away, then I'm in control, you know, and I'm going to have a distorted view. And I think the problem is with the theology of glory and happy Clappianism uh, around us. The problem is Christians today are ready to say, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. God has made it. In the day of adversity, just survive it because it's come from the devil. Right? Whereas Solomon says, not so fast. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity come from the Lord. You know, where Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the Lord takes away the day of adversity comes from the Lord. That only a theologian of the cross can confess. A theologian of glory will constantly stumble and not confess it. So, more on that, Alice. Yeah, later in the class. All right. The Lord be with you. So, what'd you think?
0: Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you with the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.